Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and this is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. Today's podcast features the drummer for the Broadway musical Wicked. His name is Matt Vanderen. Matt started playing drums at the age of 13. He was trained as a classical percussionist and graduated from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and also attended the Interlochen Center for the Arts. He helped form the heavy metal thrash band Defiance and recorded three albums for Roadrunner Records. They toured the United States, opening for bands such as Violence, Flotsam and Jetsam, Testament, Forbidden, Death Angel, and Dark Angel. Matt studied drum set with Greg Sudemeyer, who was the musical director at Broadway by the Bay. And after about five seasons of working with him and others over there, Matt joined the Musicians Union and began working with several theater companies all over the San Francisco Bay Area. In 2004, Matt moved to New York City and began to sub on several Broadway shows such as Fiddler on the Roof, Assassins, and Wicked. While subbing on Wicked, Matt was offered to open up the first national tour of the show and performed in such cities as Toronto, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and many others. After working on the tour for about a year, Matt took over the drum chair for Wicked on Broadway in March of 2006, where he continues to perform at the Gershwin Theater to this day. You'll hear more of his story right after this. Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton hyphen Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and my guest today is the legendary Matt Vanderen. Oh, my God. The legendary. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for like joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate you taking time out. I have many, many questions to ask. And the first one... I want to find out where you grew up. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, this is, this is really a special opportunity. I think it's going to be pretty cool. 
um, I've always wanted somebody to talk about Broadway drumming in a way to bring it to, to people. Cause I get lessons where people want to learn and learn that specific thing. So thank you very much. Um, I grew up out in Oakland, California. That's where I'm from. I was born in San Francisco, but raised in Oakland. And uh, that's where I went to school. And I spent like the first 33 years of my life before I moved out to New York City. Did you uh, always want to play drums when you were a little kid? Did you play like pots and pans or? Yeah, I did. I kind of, it sounds cliche, but yes, I definitely did. I used to play on the banisters too (laughs) in my mom's house or my parents' house, I should say. Was there something that influenced you into wanting to play drums? Yeah, at the time, Oakland um, public schools were requiring that their students either be a member of the chorus or be a member of the of a music ensemble. And so, being a member of the music ensemble, I mean, they would test you. And I wasn't a very good singer, so I went in to go try to be a member of the music ensemble. And they were testing in, in different instruments, and they had sensed that I had natural enough rhythm so they kind of gave me a pair of drumsticks and i just kind of took to it it was interesting i took to it easier than the other ones i tried trumpet and clarinet and didn't pan out so were, drums you, in, was it. were you in marching bands and like i don't know if you had one in, in middle school or at high school did you play in marching band or, or concert band or jazz band what kind of musical ensembles did you play in? um let's see in grammar school i did yeah, it's like school band stuff, but it was classically oriented as well. I played in the Oakland Youth Symphony by the time I was in seventh or eighth grade, I think it was. Wow. Maybe. I can't really remember, but I was playing in the Oakland Youth Symphony. Um, and then after that, I was entering into high school and I was playing in the big band. And I went to a Catholic high school for for all boys. So it's we didn't have like a... Um, a nationally known marching band program or a drum corps program. We had a band, we had an, uh, an orchestra and a jazz band. And so I played in all three. Um, <clears throat> the jazz band there is where I got my experience in playing in like the Santa Cruz jazz festival, the, the Reno jazz festival, the Monterey jazz festival for high school bands. Um, and then I went to Interlochen for a summer and then I came back and I played in the San Francisco Youth Symphony. So all this was kind of happening in um, like my high school, late grammar school, junior high school, high school years. So it wasn't, I didn't do marching band. I mean, <laughs> the marching band for our high school was just to show up at a football game and play a couple of like, you know, charges like, go. <laughs> <laughs> really, it really wasn't like an organized marching band. It was more just like cheer, cheer, rah, rah, you know, do well, Panthers. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's interlocking? Oh, interlocking. It's uh, you know, and I just forgot this because it's now changed their name, but it's still Interlochen uh, Academy for the Arts. Um, it's a school, a lot like Tanglewood, and they have a summer program and they have a year-round school program, and it's designed for art students that are doing a. Uh, dance, ballet, orchestra, jazz, and theater. And theater was kind of on the beginning edge of it when I was there back in the 80s. Um, Now I understand that it's a pretty big part of the program there. There's one percussionist that subs for Andy Jones at Wicked that teaches over there. Um, He says that it's a big program. And the jazz program there is instrumental in... (laughs) 
it's the reason why I ended up leaving the classical world. <laughs> I mean, I loved classical music. I've been playing for a long time and I played in San Francisco youth and I went to the San Francisco conservatory of music. And I thought that that was a route that I was really going to go, but I was also playing a lot of drum set. I played in a lot of big bands and I was having more fun playing in big bands and playing in small group jazz bands. And, you know, like a lot of kids of my age in that era, quick kiss was a huge influence on us for like, you know, being a rock and roll drummer. And I couldn't get it out of that too. So I was trying to juggle all that, like jazz and rock and roll and classical classical was mostly my parents wanted me to make sure that I had a formal education in music so that I could always use it as something to fall back on either for teaching or to try to find a, a symphonic job, you know, in one of the major symphonies around the country, around the world. And that was the direction I was heading, but I just, I made a decision somewhere around my junior junior year at the conservatory that I think I wasn't going to pursue that. I finished my education, got my bachelor's, but I ended up, you know, at that time I was in my heavy metal band and we were starting to record records and I really enjoyed playing in the studio. When I'd done a couple of records, I thought this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, I loved recording albums. So I just, I remember my teacher saying like, you know, it's really competitive in the classical world and you got to make sure you have a high edge on being one of the first choices. You know, everybody at that point was graduating from their separate conservatories or institutions around the country and going to join and try to play at the New World Symphony over in Florida with uh, Michael Tilson Thomas. And I remember like, uh, all right, I think I'm going to use classical as like, the backup and just kind of sub around town and do a few little stuff. And it was very instrumental in me going into the Broadway world because I had all that background. So I was able to sub on percussion books and play crossover percussion books and drum books. And I was hired a couple of times as a percussionist between San Jose and San Francisco. Um, you know, while I was still doing drum set after the conservatory, by the time I had gotten into musical theater. So it was incredibly important. I, you know, I didn't realize any of that until years later. <laughs> mm. You mentioned Peter Chris earlier. You know, I, I oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To a lot of different influences in the, in my uh, development as a musician. Yeah. Uh, what were some of your uh, biggest influences as far as drummers are concerned, or even bands are concerned? I guess Kiss was one. Yeah, Kiss was one of them. That's kind of the, the one that got it started for me. Um, there's really so many of them. I remember like I went to a couple of jazz camps. I went to the Stanford jazz camp and this is right around the time when people or drummers and at Interlochen as well, drummers were there were also turning me on to um, Steve Gadd, Vinnie Cauyuta, Dave Weckl, uh, you know, these guys in the, this be the mid eighties and the nineties when, you know, crossover fusion and jazz was, was becoming a thing. Um, and the bands that I was listening to up to that age as well, because I'd started a heavy metal band was like Metallica and, um, uh, you know, Megadeth and, and just the, I went to so many concerts in the arenas in the eighties of all these rock bands. I mean, Van Halen, Dawkins, Dio, Black Sabbath, uh, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard. <laughs> like I had all these records. I was so into that rock and roll and that hair metal band stuff. And 
I would go to see anything that came around town. And it also meant that I would go and see like, uh, if Steve Gadd was touring with somebody or Dave Weckl was touring with somebody. Um, I saw Dave Weckl with the, uh, Chikoria band a couple of times and, um, the original? Vinny Ke- yeah, the original one, the original lineup of the electric band. Um, which was, yeah, I know <laughs> I was, when I watched them while I'm sitting there, I'm like this metalhead watching this guy and that band. And, you know, I'd been studying with the teacher about how they specifically displayed, displaced the entire beat of the tune by 16th note. And they start doing this each time they go around in a verse and or a course. And of course I can't figure it out. I mean, they're like too young and I just can't hear it that they either just played a, an odd meter measure of like, you know, 15, 16 or something, <laughs> you know, where they just displaced it by one eight sixteenth. But just the intellectual aspect of watching these guys plays was so incredible. It was on a completely different level, you know, but I think, I remember the teachers I was studying with, they're like, you need to study everything and learn everything. Just, you know, check out this drummer, check out that drummer, check out this record, check out that record, check out this band and that band. And, you know, going to all these concerts, it was huge. Was this more at the San Francisco Conservatory that you got all this stuff? San Francisco Conservatory Museum? Yeah, a little bit. Like, um, it was high school, Interlochen, the conservatory, and private teachers. So... I was studying with a couple of different private teachers at that time. And then my teacher at the conservatory and uh, at Interlochen, because we were also intensive, all musicians together. That's actually when I got turned on to Stevie Ray Vaughan was at uh, Interlochen. And um, also in high school, you know, that was like my early days of playing big band and you know, I was a freshman and the seniors were listening to all of the early big band records. And I had a teacher that he used to, he used to tell me that I should have, um, uh, uh, what's the drummer's name from, uh, the village van, uh, the, Oh, Mel Lewis, excuse me. God, I can't believe I don't remember his name. Um, he said that I should have a daily diet of listening to, to Mel Lewis. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. It's just, you know, like, if you're going to play big band or listen to one of the great recording drummers, big bang drummers of, of this era, you should listen to this guy. And, you know, oddly enough, he was one of my favorite drummers as a big band drummer. And his bass trombone player is our bass trombone player at Wicked. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. When I first walked in there and I noticed who it was and, and I was, I was kind of nervous and then, I was eventually I was like, Doug, you used to play with blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh man, I, you know, I, I like listened to Mel Lewis all the time as a kid is one of my go-to drummers for listening to all this stuff. And what was it like working with him and playing with him? It was really fun to just kind of listen to all his stories and, and so forth. It's so. one of the good things about playing on a show, especially if it's a, a long running show or even a, you know, hit Broadway show and a lot of people come through and you start meeting yeah. a lot of people and you're like, wait a minute, you were the, drum a bass player on this album that i used to listen to yeah. when i was a kid i'm like now i'm playing next to you I'm like oh my god i know I it's weird <laughs> i know it's really weird <laughs> uh but before we get into broadway now you were at the san francisco conservatory of music correct. and you were also in a band called defiance correct <laughs> <laughs> now i i grew up in the same time period as you. I was born three years earlier than you, but I used to go to a lot of concerts at the Hartford Civic Center seeing... You, you were born three years earlier than me? Why do you look 10 years younger than me? <laughs> it's the, it's you the loss of hair. And 
Okay. <laughs> I lost it earlier than you. <laughs> oh my god! No, I okay. uh, I used to go to the Harvard Civic Center and see Parliament and Rufus and Shaka Khan and oh, wow. you know all oh, the brothers Johnson. Wow. And then you know my cousin was into into hard rock and metal. Same with my sister; she was into Aerosmith and and Kiss. And that's how I got into Kiss Alive too. I didn't hear Kiss Alive one until I was in my own metal band. They're like, man, Kiss Alive two—that's cool, but Kiss Alive one is what you need to hear. Yeah, I know. I know exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I didn't realize until I saw a documentary recently that Kiss Alive One is one of the uh, they call it, you know one of the best live recordings of all time and one of the biggest selling live recordings of all time. It's pretty interesting. It's in like wow. the top ten. I didn't know that either. Wow. But uh, I got into heavier music through my cousin who was into Def Leppard and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, and then I went to a rock concert and like I don't know. I forgot what year it was, but it was Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. And I had used and been, been used to seeing stuff like Parliament, Funkadelic, and the spaceship and, and crazy outfits. But, man, when I saw people with skull and crossbones and then I saw <laughs> Robert Halford come out in his motorcycle and then when Iron Maiden came out with Eddie, this monster, I'm like, holy yeah. shit, this is fucking cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And then I, I got into heavier music, but, you know, having multiple influences, but then seeing something that's like, okay, that's what I want to do. So I want to play heavy like Iron Maiden, but I want to play funky like uh, Jerome Braley or Dennis Chambers from Parliament, but also want to yeah. play like Earth on the Fire, and, yeah. and I love the AM rock. But enough about me. You got <laughs> into metal music kind of at this. I don't know if it's at the same time, but you I actually so. started, started a, a metal band called Defiance. Now, how did you go from big band classical to like heavy metal? Um, you were just beginning to touch on something. The theatrics behind those, like the Iron Maiden and those, like those bands that would play those gigantic concerts that we would go see, as, you know, as young teenagers, was a big part of the theatrics that um, was part of the allure of playing all this music. And then just being a drummer and wanting to be a part of all of that. Um, classical music was what I was uh, trained in. And I love it. I really do. Um, Jazz and big band was an evolution of moving in that direction because it's it's exponentially more complicated and more intellectual to play. And I love playing in a large band, so big band's a lot of fun. Rock and roll and metal is something that, like as a young kid in the 80s, I don't think any of us didn't get bit by that bug. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just the, the theatrics and the show behind it. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I wanted to be able to play like a, like a Steve Gadd or a Vinnie Cauda and still be in a band like a, an Iron Maiden or a, or, or a Dio and yet still be able to, you know, play in a classical symphony orchestra. I just, I liked it all. And ultimately I was kind of a big drum gig. Like I really loved drums. I loved the sound of the cymbals and I loved learning like you know how you play all these different colors in the symbols but then sometimes you have to play really hard and heavy in order to be able to cover a, a metal band thing but that was like playing bombastic was something that i never really really liked to do a lot of metal drummers it's kind of required but um i, I would just you know learn all these different 
styles of playing and different genres of music. There was so much going on in the eighties, like all these different, different types of music. I would go to a U2 concert and then to a Dio concert. And then I could see Chick Corea and his electric band, or I could go play in a college band and, you know, play in a big band. And then there's symphony orchestras and, and what have you. I mean, it was an all encompassing, there was always something going on of a different genre. And I would have friends that would like, got to check this out. You got to check that out. And I, w- I wanted to be a part of it all and like learn as much of it as I possibly could. Um, you were in you the Bay, Bay area in the late eighties and early nineties where Metallica came out, out of Korea. Yeah. Did you yeah, know that? Exactly. Did you hang out with them? Um, I didn't hang out with them. My band. Uh, so yeah, I didn't really answer your earlier question. Getting involved in heavy metal. Um, I was with some friends and we got together with a metal band, uh, with, playing heavy metal and they turned me on to Metallica. It was like the ride, the lightning record. I got hip to kill them all before that. Um, I mean, after ride the lightning, but ride the lightning is what we started listening to. And I went to go see Metallica at the Kabuki theater in San Francisco. And I think the, I think that the double kick drum and, and the and kind of like the aggressive nature of them as an early thrash metal band just threw me against the wall. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And just the energy into, inside of the, that, that theater. Um, and then seeing Metallica graduate to play at the Day on the Green, a huge, massive festival at the Oakland Arenas or at the Oakland Stadium. Um, we started a band because we wanted to be like that. And we always wanted to, <clears throat> excuse me, meet Metallica. I had members of my band that had met James or one member of our band knew uh, Kurt Hammett's sister or ex-wife or something like that um they were all kind of around in the bay area uh i was a little late on the game because i was probably 18 19 at this point and the guys that i was in the band with were already into their 20s and metallica was already into their mid-20s um so when they hung out at all these parties we would have keg parties in the berkeley hills or oakland hills or san francisco they would go but that was a little before my time and once they became like a big band they were playing um, at, at, uh, at big theaters and uh, nightclubs in Berkeley and in Oakland and in San Francisco. So we tried doing a club gig at an old like Elks club where it was actually us. I think our bass player put this gig together. It was us Testament. And this is before Testament changed their name from uh to testament they used to be called legacy (laughs) and metallica wasn't going to play on the bill but james and i believe kurt came to the gig and knowing that those two were coming to the gig brought a lot of people to that gig and i remember it being really crazy there oh and exodus played that gig too I don't know if, you know, people out there that know the old metal stuff, Exodus was a big Bay Area band from that era. And um, that was the closest I got to meeting and hanging out with James or anybody from Metallica. Um, I used to go to Kurt Hammett's house when he was on tour. His Is it his wife or something? I can't really remember. But they were living out, I think, in El Sobrante and or El Cerrito. Um, we would go to his house cause she would have a party or something. And he had like platinum records from all over the world 
of Metallica sales uh, awards and like, you know, stacks of guitars and stuff. So I never got to hang out with them. I got close. <laughs> um, we never really opened up for them. We were just kind of one of these metal bands that played around the Bay Area that played with a lot of bands and we toured with a lot of bands that either had opened for Metallica or toured with Metallica. Um, but we were always like just that much close. <laughs> so you, you, you got out of college and then you went on tour with uh, Defiance? Yeah, I actually toured with Defiance before I finished uh, the conservatory. I had done, I'd released, we released our second record and uh, we got a tour with a band called Violence and we toured the United States with them. So we were then going to tour the United States and we did like, you know, Mexico right over the border in Tijuana. We would do um, Vancouver and or Toronto. Um, I did that tour and then I came back. And I needed to finish up at the conservatory. So I finished up my degree there. And then we were going to go on tour again. Uh, right around this time when we were touring again, we were doing our third record. Things were getting a little rocky in the band. So I did finish up my, my career at the conservatory. I mean, my school at the conservatory. But my career with Metallica, I mean, with Defiance was kind of balancing weird. I was kind of trying to, to tour with them and do that. But then I had to finish school. So I did take time off from school to tour and then I would come back and finish school. And then I joined a band uh, and I lived in LA for about six months with that band doing that. Ah, did you go from, yeah. uh, did you go from LA to New York after that? After No, LA? I moved back up. I moved back up to the Bay area. I had done, um, I had played, I wanted to be like Jeff Beccaro and Steve Gadd so bad. <laughs> I wanted to be in all the studios and I was trying to figure out if I could do something like that. And I was the only way that I could make a, a record feel authentic was to play in a, a certain type of band of the styles that, that people were typically hiring drummers for. So I, I'd started a band um, with a couple members from the San Francisco youth symphony that I toured with because the San Francisco youth symphony toured all over Asia when I was with them back in the eighties. Um, and we did this hip hop funk like groove thing. It was like uh, pre Jamiroquai, <laughs> pre uh, uh, you know, Maroon Five. It was a large band. It played a lot of funk and 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 uh, groove rhythms, and it had a lot of jazz influence because uh, a couple of the guys that were in the brass section were members of the Berkeley High Jazz uh, Band. That was actually either nationally, they've won national awards or statewide awards. I can't remember, but they were really great. And we had a hit, we had a rapper. And so we tried mixing in the hip hop thing with it too. Um, and that was a band that I was really hoping would take off and it, it never did. But um, I was doing that and I was still so involved in the metal scene because I had been with this band that released records and we toured. Um, I joined a band that moved to Los Angeles to record a record. So I was trying to balance that out. But after that, with the other band, which that was Laws Rocket, uh, they were another Bay Area band that was pretty well known at the time. They, the whole, that whole thing kind of started to fall apart. So I moved back to the Bay Area <laughs> and I was trying to pursue that first band, which is called the, the Groove Shop at this point. And then balancing another rock band I was playing with, which was kind of a college band. And we were touring up and down the coast and just trying to stay busy and, and, and so on and so forth. And shortly after that, I had actually gotten married. Um, I'd met somebody that was in the record industry and we got married. Uh, and this is actually what brought me into the theater world or got me closer into the theater world. 
she, um, she was a record executive and I'd always known this, but she made it very aware to me just exactly how the record industry treats musicians and the bands <laughs> and the, I, the proverbial, if they throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks is really true. And I had learned the hard way being in a signed band. I mean, um, Laws Rocket was signed to Sony, to Sony Pony Canyon out of Japan. Uh, Defiance was signed to Roadrunner MCA Records out of New York. And there's one other band, um, Groove Shop was getting interest from some labels, but not really. And then I tried auditioning for a couple different bands. I auditioned for White Zombie. I auditioned for Ugly Kid Joe. And oh, I remember them. Yeah, you remember them? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and with both with White Zombie and both with Ugly Kid Joe was the first experience I had on auditioning for a large nationally and internationally well-known band. That were they were they were platinum bands. And what I had learned was that they had already I like it's it, part of me didn't understand why they're even having an audition. They had already selected their drummer by the time I was coming in. Ugly Kid Joe was a part of a cattle call. I was literally in a line of about, I don't know, 40, 50 drummers outside of the studio somewhere in Southern California. And I'd known that they, I'd heard that they had already selected their drummer. And I went in to go play a few of the tunes with them and all they wanted to do was smoke pot. And I was like, okay, um, all right, well, let's play these tunes. And they were like, yeah, we'll let you know. I was like, okay. Was it a, Just, like a publicity stunt? I don't know what it was. I really don't know. And with um, White Zombie, the singer, um, I was, you know, should know his name, uh, Rob, Rob Zombie. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even there in the audition. It was the other people that were in the band. And uh, they liked my playing, but they had already, they had said to me at the end of the audition, they said, you know, we have a guy that we really like that we think we're going to go with, but, you know, um, we'll, we'll take the, they, they videotaped my audition and we'll, and they said, we'll take this and we'll play it for Rob Zombie. We'll see what he says and we'll call you and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, it just, yeah, it's, those auditions for those kinds of bands and cattle calls, it's, I guess it's pretty hard to land a gig unless you kind of have an end. I don't know. So you were, you were married to somebody in the music business and you learned yeah. a lot about the, the truth about things that go on. You said yeah. there was a segue into how you got into theater. Yeah, because at the time I was touring, trying to do more studio session stuff. And we were thinking of, you know, how do I stay home more and not be on the road all the time? Um, touring like that on constantly on and off the road. Um, I'd also gotten a gig with a country band, um, a country Western band. Um, she was based out of Modesto, but she was living in Nashville. So I did a, a Walmart's country cross America tour with her. And so I was gone. Um, I guess I decided that, you know, I wanted to, to see if I could do more work at home and not tour as much and do more studio work. She wanted to move to Los Angeles. So I was considering doing a permanent move to Los Angeles with her because the industry was really there. Um, but I was studying with a teacher out of San Francisco, um, a really good friend of mine that I played in San Francisco Youth Symphony with is a drummer by the name of Jim Bogus. And he was with um, Cheryl Crow for at least 10 years. He's been with the Counting Crows for maybe close to 20 years or I, don't, I can't remember. But he turned me on to a teacher 
by the name of Greg Sudmeyer, who was the music director of one of those daytime talk shows in San Francisco. And this guy was um, a contractor in the Bay Area and a pretty well-known session drummer at the time. And it was, it was him and his lessons that started to move me away from playing in a band as well as my ex-wife was telling me just how hard it is for a band to actually become well signed and then picked up and then make a real living at it. So at one point I decided I'm, I'm not going to tour as much anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to move my way out of that. And I asked him, I said, you know, um, I'm looking for more work here in the Bay area. You know, I was thinking like freelance gigs. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't want to exactly do weddings, but I wasn't sure where to go because I was doing some um, studio session stuff, but it wasn't a lot. It was really like, you got to go to LA or Nashville if you want to do more studio work. He said, because he was also a music director and he was music directing a community theater company based out of Redwood city called Broadway by the Bay or something like that. And he said, um, and he said, have you ever thought about musical theater? And I, I, I didn't mean to insult him, but I kind of laughed. I was like, you mean the stuff I played in high school? <laughs> You know, I'm like, I'm like aspiring to be the next Dave Weckl or Steve Gadd. And I was like trying to be in a metal band touring around the world on huge stages. And he's talking about Broadway. And I was like, uh, no, I never really thought about it. And he's like, well, you should think about it. And let me tell you why. And so he goes, he was a contractor for a lot of Broadway stuff that came through touring in San Francisco and that area. And he was a music director for a theater company in Redwood City. And so he started to list all the reasons why I should consider Broadway. And it started off with, I'm A, going to be playing with the very best musicians in that entire region. It's not a bunch of rock and roll heads that are trying to become the next rock star. Um, it's very high-end musicians that take their job very seriously. Um, all the big band stuff that I love to do, you're going to be playing with those people in the theaters. Um, you can make a consistent and solid living doing this instead of on the road for 30 days, you have to negotiate your pay. Are you going to get a retainer when you're off the road? When you go into the studio session, you know, you kind of are always managing yourself. And he goes, thirdly, you'll be a member of the musicians union, which is going to give you substantial benefits, health benefits, a pension retirement program, and you're going to be able to work professionally instead of, doing this. And I was like, yeah, but the music is like, you know, like, like Oklahoma boom chuck stuff. And he's like, well, you should try to listen to it on a professional level and see what you think. And I was like, okay. And he goes, so you think you're ready? And I was like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, I have an opening at my orchestra. My drummer is actually leaving and I could hire you for a show. And he's like, you have your reading chops together. You have a classical education. You have this huge background of different styles and approaches to music. So would you like to do it? And I was like, yeah, well, you know, what's the commitment? He's like two weeks. And I'm like, okay, that should be no problem. So I decided to dive into it and it was a little more overwhelming than I thought, like collecting all the instruments together, getting the book together, which was just kind of a, a, a quick sketch and like, how do you lead the band? How do you work with the music director? How do you play musically within all of these large people? And that first show that I did was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which has like a big dance section and like a, you know, two beat, uh, what do you call it? You know, music of that sort. And 
at the end of that run, all I remember is that I enjoyed myself more than I ever did playing in a metal band <laughs> and playing and trying to kill myself going on the road with all this other stuff. You know, I really, really enjoyed it. And I was like, you know what? I'd like to do this again. And I, I gave it another couple shots. Like I did that first season with him, which is three or four shows. And, uh, for the first time in many, many years, I was playing like a, a real musician contributing to a large orchestra as if I was a real musician, but I was the drummer. So I could play like a drummer. I could set up a band like a drummer. And if the rock show came around, I would play like a rock drummer. I knew how to do that. That was easy. It was a big band show came around. I was pretty good at that. I wasn't Mel Lewis by any stretch of the imagination, but I was, you know, good enough. And my biggest struggle, one thing, the one style that I never studied leading up to this point in my life was Latin music. And that was a serious hurdle to get over. And when it comes up in Broadway, yeah, I've, what was my first Latin show? I think it was Kiss of the Spider Woman or something like that. I remember I was like, wow, this feels like it's weighing over my head. And Greg had told me, he was like, maybe another drummer would be better for this show. And um, he had hired someone else that had had a much uh, deeper knowledge of Latin music playing in a big band. And I remember I was embarrassed because I kind of got fired. <laughs> and I went into all those shows and I watched that drummer play and um, the way she played and approached that book. And I learned a lot and I went in and I started studying more with my same teacher about uh, playing in different bands and approaching it as a, as a Latin drummer. Um, I still never really studied Cuban music to a degree of like a, an Ignacio Barroa or something. But um, I learned enough that uh, I would play it with big bands and I was competent enough and confident enough that when I played it on a broad, on like in a Broadway band or a theater band, I could really drive the band and make it feel good. So it was that, that's how I, I mean, I know I'm a bit long winded, but that's exactly how I got kind of pushed into that direction. It was by my own choice and by somebody who saw that I had this large um, background of experiences and I was 25 at the time. So a good solid close to, I want to say 12 years of playing experience from studying as a student on up to going through school and then touring and playing in a lot of different bands and that sort of thing. There is a theme uh, of this podcast when, with, with every musician that I talk to, which I don't think a lot of people understand and hopefully they will after hearing more and more uh, people that play on shows tell a very similar story, having a, varied background of music that they've already played, whether it's like myself, funk or jazz or blues or country. And like yourself, you know, playing a big band uh, groups and metal and, and, and country and all kinds of other things and knowing the music and understanding where it comes from and transferring that into a Broadway pit setting. It, yeah. it makes for a, better experience for the band that you're playing with and it makes you more valuable instead of coming oh, yeah. from the conservatory going right to Broadway. You're not getting yeah, a lot exactly. of the extra experience. Right. Uh, uh, and I, I have the same issue myself when it comes to Latin music. You know, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I, I know. can't play it like Andres does. No, I can't man. Do it. Oh, no, man. Are you kidding me? No. 
they're, just, I, yeah, I just, they're, they're people yeah. that do other kinds of music much better than me. I just like, hey, oh, yeah. call this person or this person is much better for the gig. And when people come in to try to, to sub for any show that I'm on, I can tell that they either haven't studied the music that the, the show comes from or they're just right. not the right person for it. So it's important right. for drummers and musicians, musicians in general to know where the music has came from. So you can bring that into the, the pit area. And, uh, exactly. But that was this teacher that got me involved in, um, in Broadway, since he was my drum teacher, one of his assignments used to give me at the end of lessons to go out and buy these records. Like, you know, um, buying records was a big deal to him. Like I should have a huge collection of these albums of different drummers and bands, and genres and music. And that included buying theater records too. So if he had hired me for a show, I was to go buy the Broadway recording or London cast recording of that show and study how that drummer approached that show, study the kind of music like uh, from that show. What's the genre of music from that show? And where would you find that genre of music that influenced the writing of that show? And lucky for me at that time, I had played in funk bands, hip hop bands, metal bands, rock bands, country bands, studio sessions, classical bands, jazz bands, and big bands that the only genre of music where I would really struggle was in Latin music. And so all of that other stuff was already kind of there, but I still continued to listen and study these other drummers and influences that led up to the record of something that I'm going to do, you know? So you did this show and did you say, you know what, it's time to move to New York City. Or did, did you take a more circuitous route? <laughs> I, uh, well, I did that show, and then I became a member of that orchestra, and I started doing their seasons there. Um, so I was around 25 at that time. I didn't move to New York City until I was about 33. And something that my teacher had, had instilled in me was that when you're ready to go play on a Broadway show, then go. But he'd go, you're not ready. He's like, you, you, you don't understand. It's like, it's a really high pressure gig. And it's the kind of job where uh, you really need to be ready to do it. So I, I stuck around and I tried getting every theater job that I could possibly get in the Bay Area. I was traveling all over the place. Um, the main theater company, and actually this is a kind of a connection that you and I have. Main theater company I started working for later was Theater Works out in Palo Alto. And they did the second world premiere of Memphis. <laughs> ah, that's right. Yep. And I was the drummer on that show. And that's where I miss, met Chris Yonke and David Bryant. That's right. And that's right. they had hired me. They had, when Chris Yonke came out to the Bay area, he was a little skeptical about their resident drummer at that theater being hired for the show. Um, but then I hung out with Chris and I met uh, David Bryant and, they, they learned about my background and the music director they had hired at the time was a Galen, I forget his last name. Uh, is it Galen Jacobs? Maybe he played with the Gatlin brothers and he was out in the Bay area and he and I hit it off and I was a bona fide full blown rock drummer from my earlier years. And so it really worked out for them on that show. Cause that was a hard hit and straight ahead rock book. Um, and I, I did that for years. And it was actually at that theater company where I met several people that were involved in the Broadway world. And 
through those contacts and influences, that's when I started making my my inroads into moving out to New York City. I got a job out in San Francisco on a touring show called Some Like It Hot, um, but I was the percussionist up there. But I actually made more contacts and met more people directly involved with Broadway in New York at Theater Works in Palo Alto. Um, I met I met Lynn Shankel out there. I did a show with her. I met Joe Mowat out there. Um, I met a lot of actors out there that were working on Broadway. Uh, you know, David Bryan and Chris Yonke. Those were probably two one of the key ones. And am I, I'm, I know I'm forgetting some people, but it was through all of that that I decided, okay, you know, and I worked with a lot of musicians that had toured around the country on Cats, on Les Miserables, on, you know, Phantom of the Opera. And people were starting to nudge me to say like, you know, you should, you should get out of here and go work in, and you should try New York because you're working all the theater jobs here in the Bay Area and this is it. This is the top level it is here outside of New York City. I had learned by touring a Broadway show that outside of New York City, everything is at that level. It's in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, you know, the, the major theater markets outside of New York City. It's a season of like four or five shows a year and they last for about a month and you just kind of freelance. And that's the top end of it. If you really want to take it to another level, you need to move to New York City. And New York City was the most intimidating thought in my entire life. I mean, L.A. seemed easier to me. You know, I was like, I kind of was somewhat involved in L.A. And plus, I grew up out on the West Coast. But New York City just seemed like no way. The best drummers on the planet are in New York City. <laughs> I can't compete in that place, <laughs> you know. But moving out to the city and then spending my time breaking in and doing that, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. I mean, that is for sure. So what year did you move to New York City? 2004, early 2004, like uh, February, March. Yeah, something like that. Did you already have a gig lined up? I didn't. Um, I had, okay, so oh, this is what I had done before that. Um, I, did a sh I did a show, uh, Smokey Joe's Cafe, out at the same theater company. And a couple of the cast members I had met had always said, you're welcome to crash on my couch if you ever want to come to New York and check it out. So I cashed in on that a couple of times. I made trips out to New York City. At this time, JetBlue was a new airline and they were offering like $40 tickets to go to New York. It's <laughs> something super cheap. It's like 80 bucks round trip. It was really ridiculous. So I would fly out there, spend a week out there and then fly back in between doing theater shows or what have you. Um, I really went into learning Broadway and wanting to do Broadway 110%. I had known that my lessons from not getting certain auditions at gigs or not getting the job that I wanted or a band not doing what I wanted to do was partly that I felt like maybe we as an entity or a band or me as an individual wasn't putting 110% into that particular gig. And I felt like I couldn't half-ass going into Broadway. I needed it to be an integral part of the fabric of who I am. Like I really want, I really want this. And so in that process, I have to learn all these styles and I have to be a drummer that's going to be hireable in New York City because there's a lot of drummers to compete with. So I started flying out to New York and I like I met out I met and hung out with Joe Mowat that he had introduced me to Billy Miller. I don't know. Uh, did you ever meet him? Yes. And so, yeah, exactly. So Billy Miller was sitting. Uh, he had just gotten the Fiddler on the Roof gig or he was actually over at Thoroughly Modern Millie. And so I met these guys and they invited me to come sit in the pit. And then 
I would fly back to California. And the main question I started to get at this point was, well, are you living here or are you going to move here? Because once you kind of get into meeting a few of these drummers and they invite you to sit in the pit, the next question is, do you live here or when are you going to be here or are you available? Because I know from myself now having sat on a show for um, 15 years that I would then start to vet them. If I got a good vibe from them, I would start to wonder, like, do you think they could handle the book? Now, if they're not living there or they're just kind of visiting, then it's a little bit like, well, yeah, give me a call when you're here because I can't use you. And that pushed me to just like, okay, I got to make the move and I got to move out to New York. So I moved out to New York in 2004 and I didn't have a gig. I just had savings. Um, I was going to live in the living room with, with a person I had met that did a show out in the Bay area and Billy Miller was kind of starting to look for a sub, but he wasn't quite sure yet. And so I think in the like four or five months or something, and he said, Hey, I lost a sub. Uh, would you be interested in learning the book and, you know, coming out, you know, and trying it? And I was like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can do it. And I, you know, watched the show and I learned the book and I did everything I needed to in my due diligence to be ready to go do the show. And that's kind of how I got started subbing, but I didn't have a gig coming into the city. I was coming in cold. I made all those old classic cold calls. I had good return phone calls. I had terrible return phone calls. I had, um, one of my best experiences and, um, it's a real bummer. We lost this one, but, uh, Dave Radicek was one of the first guys I called when I came into town and he gave me a call right back. He didn't need to. I mean, this is like one of the most consummate decorated Broadway drummers there is. And he asked me to come in and watch the book. I gave him kind of a rundown of what I do, who I am. And, uh, I mean, he's an incredible player. I was like, you know, I actually would rather just study with you <laughs> than, than, you know, sub for you because you, you're such an incredible player. Um, he, so much happened for me so quickly towards the end of that first year. And a lot of that was because a couple of drummers got gigs. One of them was Gary Seligson and the other one was Sean McDaniel. So I had met them by the time I moved out there. And actually Gary, I worked with, and this is going to sound crazy. I was still going out to California to do a couple of shows with theater works at this moment while I had moved to New York city. And it was all on my own expense just because I, I wanted to do this other job. The job that I did in California was an Andrew Lippa show called Little Princess, I think. Gary Seligson was hired on that show. And I had met Gary briefly because Chris Yonke had me come in and watch, because uh, he was at that time also associate music director of uh, Aida on Broadway. So I met Gary there. And Gary was about to leave to start Wicked. I flew out to California um, and I did a show with Andrew Lippa at Theater Works and Gary was the drummer programming all the like uh, African stuff on a SBD 20. So I worked with Gary side by side and that's kind of how I got to know him. And that's what started my connection with Wicked. But at that time when I went out there to do that, I was just started subbing at Fiddler on the Roof. That was my very first Broadway show. Yeah. I've got kind of, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. So what was it, first of all, before you go on, what was it yeah. like subbing your first show on Broadway? Terrifying. <laughs> I think a friend of mine called terrifying. subbing as a drummer on Broadway, like a two and a half hour heart attack. 
It is. Or it's like giving birth. And I'm a guy. I don't know what that's like, but I can imagine what it's like maybe giving, you know, shitting a basketball. That's about how it might feel. It's painful. <laughs> the visuals, yeah, exactly. It's painful. It feels I, good when it's over, though. It sure does. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it's an I analogy, told, man. Like, damn. I know. I've told other people, I've told other people this, and it's, it's genuinely no lie. This isn't some, from some cliche story. Billy Miller called me and said, um, I've got a date for you at uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And from that moment on, I didn't sleep well at night. I was nervous because I knew that each day, tick, tock, tick, tock, was closer to my first time subbing on Broadway. I knew what the pressure was and how incredibly critical it was to kick ass that first show. You're first out. You know what I mean? On my way to the Mitzkoff Theater to sub, I actually kind of wished I was going to get hit by a cab so I had an excuse to not go. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, so I was nervous, man. I was able to control it because I had a classical education and I had taken classes at the conservatory about controlling my nerves, about getting ready for auditions because auditions are nerve wracking, especially in the classical world. You've got to learn all this repertoire and it has to be flawless. And I approached playing Fiddler on the Roof the same way. Every single note, I wanted to play and feel like the way that Billy plays that book. And there happened to be a particularly difficult music director, a very good one, but just very particular, uh, that was conducting that show. Um, that was Kevin Stites. He was running that company. And he was uh, the real deal. Just like, you know, I had Herbert Bloomstead. I played under Herbert Bloomstead and under... Uh, you know, Michael Tilson Thomas a couple of times with the San Francisco Youth Symphony. And at the conservatory, I was always under the microscope from the principal percussionist of the symphony and my main teacher there, Ray Froelich. So every single tiny, you know, difference in playing, they could pick it out and tell me what's wrong with my playing or what I did wrong. And I knew that Kevin was the same way. He heard everything. So that put an added amount of pressure on top of it. And I had noticed... And sometimes that when you're a new sub, sometimes it's not the regular music director there, which takes some of the pressure off. But in this particular instance, Kevin was like, I have to be there for the, for, for the subs first drummer, uh, for the drummer's first show. And we were on stage. So I was really nervous. I, I remember like all my training from the years of, of the conservatory and the education to interlock and then my years of experience of playing in bands and touring and playing in front of large audiences, I couldn't control my thoughts. So I was able to fall back on my training and just go calm down. You know, this stuff, you've been playing this stuff in your sleep. You could quite literally close your eyes and just play the show without any thought, but your, your mind's racing at a thousand miles an hour, you know? And it's like at the end of each tune, my stomach would get, more and more tight and my throat was tight and I could, you know, I was trying trying to drink water and I was worried that Kevin noticed that I was nervous or not, you know, and by the time the show was over, this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders and I felt like I was going to sleep for the first time in a week or two. (laughs) And I felt like I could relax and I got a compliment from Kevin. I had, I was told that he never compliments people and he complimented me. And a couple of the people that walked by had complimented me and I felt like 
all my hard work actually paid off. Like the old fashioned way, no politics, no BS, old fashioned, good old hard work actually paid off. And it was great, man. I mean, that was kind of how it got started. That got uh, Larry Lelly to say, come play over at Assassins. Um, it got Gary to kind of say, okay, you sub for Kevin Stites. That's a pretty big deal. The show's not that hard, but it's just playing in a large orchestra in front of a very particular music director that could easily make or break your career in a matter of, you know, 30 seconds. Um, it opened up some doors for me. It was, I was, I was really glad that it paid off and I put in the hard work. Um, sometimes politics can dictate things differently, but it, it did pan out the right way, you know, and, um, that kind of led my way into other stuff. Uh, there were also a couple drummers that I would call. I've been subbing at Fiddler and I just started subbing at Assassins and Assassins was for, um, uh, oh man, what's the music director's name there that does all the Sondheim shows? Help me out here. A woman? No, a guy. Um, he's a drummer. That, oh, no. Oh, oh, maybe I'll get it to you later. Anyway, he was another one that was a particularly really hard music director because he's a drummer himself. And he, I had uh, been approved on Assassins playing at 54, where I don't know if, if you've played a show there yet, but there would be half the orchestra on one of the right, you know, sections of whatever over the stage. And another half of the orchestra on the other side of the theater. <laughs> so you were playing against, a, a, you were playing against this weird delay you'd hear from the other side of the orchestra through a hot spot. And then you'd hear the stage, which is kind of in front of you. And everything was in three different, like, you know, time signatures, it felt like, in like three different areas of the theater. And then you had um, Gimignani, Paul Gimignani. Thank you. Paul Gimignani would conduct um, so far ahead of the beat that, I wasn't clear what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I leaned on that bass player so hard and yet you're the drummer. So you can't let them guide you. You have to still lead the band. But Gimignani had a very special way of pulling the band along and making the show feel incredible while the singers, because the singers were way behind the beat. The band on the other side of the orchestra was like a, t a time delay. And then Julian, I mean, uh, Gimignani is way ahead of the beat. So somewhere the band and the singers and the other side of the orchestra and Gimignani, the whole thing just kind of worked. And through these experiences, Gary wasn't going to hire me for Wicked. He had said, I've got everybody that I need. And so kind of to circle back to my original point, Sean McDaniel got a show. All of a sudden there was this vacuum of space for uh, subs. And so... Rent, uh, Jeff um, Potter had called me. Um, Sean wasn't over at Chicago, but uh, Ronnie Zito called me. Uh, Gary had said, okay, I think I, now I have a spot. I think I could use you. I was already over to Assassin's. That's about to close. And then I was at Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, there was one other that I was, I can't remember what I was going to, what I got called for. So I was trying to like figure out how to learn all these books. And then it just so happened that I was about to go in and start learning Wicked when, when uh, I had said to Gary, I said, you know, I wouldn't mind going out on the road. I loved touring. I kind of stopped doing it, but I wouldn't mind going out on the road with the theater 
company or a show. So I'm assuming you weren't married at, at this time. No, that's right. I skipped that part. <laughs> I had gotten divorced when I, after I got divorced was what was what as another one of the catalysts that pushed me to make the final move to, to New York city. Uh-huh. So I was single at this point. Um, Gary said, I think we have an opening for first national of wicked. Uh, it's going to go out pretty soon. And I'll throw your name into the hat at Michael Keller. I had met Michael Keller when I was working with Gary Seligson out in California. Michael Keller was interested in contracting the show. His wife has a sister or family member out in the Bay Area. So he was out there visiting. He came in and I met Michael Keller that way. And oddly, the shows that I was subbing on were all Keller shows. I've never worked for John Miller. I've played with John Miller. I've just never worked for him. It's really bizarre how that happens. But he gave my name to Keller. And Keller called me and said, uh, hey, I, um, I remember meeting you out in California. Would you be interested in possibly doing the first national of Wicked? And I was like, yeah, what do I need to do? And he goes, um, well, you need to sub at Wicked because the new music director is going to take that tour out and then you need to get approved and you need to do it pretty fast. When do you think you can get in there and do it? And I was like, um, I don't know. And he goes, okay, well, let me talk to Gary. So some time went by, right? You know, and this is all happening within that first year that I had moved to New York City. It was really slow at first, and then it picked up and it just snowballed. And so I remember I turned down a couple of sub jobs to learn the Wicked book because I thought this is my opportunity to do this. And Wicked, to me, was my wheelhouse like you wouldn't believe. It was a hard rocking hit show. It had, um, I mean, I was playing like a real drummer all these different styles. I mean, like the police and reggae styles, the ska feels, the rock and roll stuff was like right up my alley. And then the classical stuff that that book has to cross over was also right up my alley. Um, it was a traditionally conducted show with very little click track and the electronics was not completely up my alley, but it wasn't a lot involved in wicked. So I was like, I could learn this thing. And I remember it came together really quickly and Keller had called me and said, um, have you subbed at wicked yet? And I said, no, And he goes, oh, man, I need to know what's going on because we have to get somebody in place for this tour right away. And I said, "Okay, okay, okay, I'll learn. I'll I'll, I'll get in there. And so he had called Gary and said, we need to get Matt to sub at the show. Just get him in one or two times to see if, you know, Bob Billig was the music director. It's like to see if Bob would approve him because Bob wants to get a drummer set up. And they had a couple other people in mind. So I went in and subbed, but I had to get that book together quite literally in a week and a half or two weeks. Wow. Yeah, I know. And actually Joe Mowat and Lynn Schenkel are pretty instrumental in that process. They went on a big vacation, I think, and they wanted me to babysit their dogs and they were living out in Nyack. And so I went out there, set up Joe's drums, set up a, a, a carbon copy of the Wicked setup, and I practiced there like six to eight hours a day for about a week. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and that was part one of my interview with Matt Vanderen. In part two, we talk about some of his musical influences and how his studying classical music, big band, and playing in a heavy metal band made it easier for him to play the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube channel, as well as the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter. Stay tuned for part two. Thank you for listening. 